The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Our guest today is Dr. Elwi Met, one of our favorite professors when we were undergrads. Elle is an environmental anthropologist working on many projects ranging from state climate change advocacy to racial microaggressions on campus. Her studies are fascinating, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. So what current projects are you working on? We found a, a large breadth yeah. of projects yeah. that, you know, in multiple different <laughs> disciplines and they domains. They are. Yeah, I do. I have a lot going on in a lot of different areas. So when it comes to environmental topics, I have a lot of projects going on with various groups, right? So one that's going on right now, actually, with service learning and Julia Yakovich over in um, CETL is an interesting project that is an interdisciplinary project with engineering, public engagement, anthropology, and and actually a, a private company called REA, which makes biofuel, Ooh. and the Municipal District Commission of Hartford, which is the water district. Mm-hmm. And the district is called MDC. And MDC and REA are working together to try to solve the problem of the buildup of, which is a completely unsexy idea, but the buildup <laughs> of fats and oils and greases from food establishments uh. throughout Hartford and the Hartford area in the pipes because it leads to health concerns and uh, water blockages and you know it leads to the public not having water access mm-hmm. and expensive infrastructure projects and so they wanted to figure out how do we sort of figure out who is actually following protocol and following the procedure in terms of how to keep these things out of the pipes, who isn't, and then better yet, how do we educate and advocate that this is something that's important for the local environment, it's important for these businesses, and it's important for the city. And so they actually came to UConn and came to Julia Yakovich over in uh, Seattle and said, how do we make this an educational opportunity. And so we sort of built this team of graduate students, undergraduates, professors and staff to build a survey which is going through IRB now. Mm. It's going to be mobilized in the next couple months. It'll be a long-term survey where we're not at all interested in regulation, Mm -hmm. but we're interested in gathering data on methods that various establishments use for disposing of these materials, why they may or may not follow sort of the prescribed protocols for doing so, and how do we incentivize environmental and corporate responsibility Mm -hmm. in in this setting. So I'm sort of helping with the students sort of as they build a survey, as they think about entering to this and thinking about, well, to what extent is this about a community and building a sort of community feel of, you know, and I'm doing this not simply just for the fact that I'm being told that I have to, but I'm doing this because this is the right thing to do. And how do you set in motion a long-term relationship? And so that's the expertise of the anthropologist and understanding the community interaction, how you get people to engage with one another and how they find their best interest in this. Exactly. That's a lot of what I do in terms of environmental work, because it's very applied. Environmental Mm -hmm. anthropology is extremely applied. And from my perspective, a lot of it comes from what motivates somebody to act. And in many cases, and especially in areas that need the most attention, the motivation to act is not coming from a place of environmentalist ethic, right? It's not coming from someone who's already green. It's coming from concern with health. It's coming from a concern with uh, safe drinking water, a concern with national security, a concern with economics, a concern with the availability of future resources. 
And those conversation points can get you a lot further than, you know, do you believe in climate change? Right. Which it's obviously great to leverage those things because at least you get the job done. But how do you get them to that next step where then they come to accept and value supporting the environment? And, and, yeah. And like awareness versus action. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. Because you really can say, well, if you, get to that, if you get to that end point, what does it matter? But at a certain point, it does start to matter mm -hmm. for long term. And what I found in my earlier research when I was doing work down in the Mississippi Delta working with commodity farmers who had had a long-term reputation of anti-environmental behaviors but were initiating a number of conservation measures on their own land and making substantial progress, what I found was that as they started to implement these practices, they also started to recognize that this was my father's land, this was my grandfather's mm -hmm. land. I like taking care of this. I want to take care of this, right? You know, we've been using dangerous practices that limit not only our own profitability and our own productivity, but also hurt this environment for a long time. And I don't want to do that anymore. At the same time, they're saving money by using less water, using right. fewer inputs. And so it all starts to kind of come into the same place. As one of them told me, I'm, I'm not going to be green because... To be green is to be a Democrat, and that's a four-letter word, right? <laughs> All of this was anonymous, yeah. right? None of them wanted to be known mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the conservation that they were actually implementing. Interesting. But they did it, and they were started to feel better about it. So that investment in the land from a pragmatic place, it leads to that bond forming kind of that leads you to maybe an environmental ethic to a certain degree? We do see that, and we see that participating in these events and in these practices does cultivate a certain ethic and it cultivates mm -hmm. a certain sense of allegiance and place attachment mm -hmm. to a larger community, mm -hmm. right? And to a larger community of people and a larger community of non-human species as well. Yeah, specifically with climate change awareness, I don't know where I heard this. Somebody was saying that pretty much everywhere in the world understands what's going on, except for a very resistant fraction of the United States. Something. Uh -huh. And I don't know how true that is. I don't know if you can talk about you know, where you see the most awareness and advocacy versus, you know, the most resistance and people are saying nothing's happening. If there is actually a distribution throughout the world or if it is just a trend kind of held here for maybe some political reason, I don't know what. But It seems to me, and the counterpoint I often hear, is not that it's necessarily a, a true denialism, mm -hmm. but that it's, it's a convenient resistance sure. because it comes in direct opposition to short-term economic growth mm -hmm. or economic gain. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't even say growth because you can absolutely establish growth by moving towards more sustainable right. methods. But really what we're seeing is both a political and an economic resistance to any modification of enormous short-term monetary gain. Mm -hmm. But throughout the world, it seems that most people are yeah. Aware, at least, yes, that yes, you know, yes. we're oh. doing something. Certainly we see pockets of the same sort of political resistance that we see in the United States around the world mm -hmm. in various places as well. And it's, it's dangerous. But I do feel as if we are, in fact, also seeing that the majority of populations are right. recognizing. And also one of the misnomers that often takes place and often gets thrown around, even in the environmental anthro literature, is the idea that environmentalism is an elitist pastime. And if you look around the world, that is not at all the way that concern for the environment nor environmentally-based philosophies come from. It is not the um, activity or the brainchild of the elite the, who mm -hmm. have the resources to spend their time thinking about it. Right. 
on some level that's cultural i imagine because like i mean you can think of there being certain groups like you know you think native americans historically have been more uh, people who think about nature more and put in that value and i think also uh more like communal groups um also when they recognize that this land this area is shared by all people and that it needs to be producing for everyone as opposed to like a individualist perspective that we have uh, in western culture more so that then they ignore that because they're thinking only for themselves in this short term like you're saying absolutely absolutely it's very much an anthropocentric versus an ecocentric mm-hmm. perspective right whereas anthropocentric is looking out for the human well-being and oftentimes that's sort of short-term gain versus ecocentric which is not environment over humans but the idea that the humans are part of the environment um, and what we do see is that there's a really wonderful book written by Eugene Anderson called Ecologies of the Heart and it really gets at exactly what you were talking about in terms of the fact that for the very very most environmentally attuned populations around the world, there is an inherent sort of almost religiosity mm-hmm. um, and spirituality connecting them to the environment and non-human species. And they revere that, and that dictates many of their behaviors, their actions, and their ethics. Yeah, there needs to almost be some sort of like nature immersion program to kind of reconnect us back, <laughs> right? Because if we're so far removed from one, our food, hunting, meat production, mm-hmm. crop production, we, do, we have no identity now with, you know, the natural world. And when that happens, you don't see the effects of what you're doing. It's so anthropocentric, like you said, yeah. right? It's, you know, there's us and then there's them, but we are, we're animals, mm-hmm. right? Like there's no tie now. There's no pure relationship with nature we need to get everybody back outside and into the woods <laughs> <laughs> and there's i do see i feel like there's also movements in that direction yeah i, I really do um and it sounds optimistic but i i do feel like we're seeing more and more recognition that you know humans do not thrive when there's a deprivation and a, a significant mm-hmm. separation um from from nature but right. certainly that the technology through which we view it is getting in our way yes <laughs> so you weren't always like environmental anthropologist though, right? So you started out as a biological anthropologist. So what is the distinction between those two fields? So biological anthropology, is it's a huge uh, subfield of the discipline, but it's largely looking at human, I was looking at human evolution, right? So human evolution, human origins, um, the development of the human physiology and anatomy, and and, and looking at the the human family tree, right? And so I I definitely started off grad school along those lines. Um, I was really interested in early on the role of narrative in theory of human evolution mm-hmm. and, the, and the kind of the tales that you hear about how all of these fossil remains sort of fit together to right. create these trees. And when I got into grad school, I continued on that track for quite a while. I had a job working with an anthropologist named Jane Hanks, who was 95 years old. And she and her husband, Lucian Hanks, were the first ethnographers to go into northern Thailand. And she invited me to her house every morning one summer during graduate school. And my job was to catalog all of her field notes and her books, her photographs and her notes. She had taken classes with Franz Boas and Margaret Mead Mm -hmm. and Ruth Benedict. And she had the notes from their (laughs) classes. And so I just kind of immersed myself in this and kind of came out of this realizing that I wanted to have more of a contemporary cultural side to what I was doing. I still very much wanted to be examining sort of the place that human beings have continued to Mm -hmm. fill in their natural environments, 
but I, I got far more into sort of the contemporary and moved a bit away. And I also knew that lab work was not necessarily going to be where I wanted to be. I wanted to be much more in sort of the theory and the writing in the field. The first time I heard it was actually in your course, you know, uh, the Australopithecus and the yeah. evolution from, you know, Central Africa and the migration outwards. And then you've all know Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. I don't know if you've read that. It uh -huh. also documents, you know, like it's the origin of the species, right? And the movement of mankind. But it's such a strange perspective when you think that, if you think of like dogs, how many different breeds of dogs there are, species of dogs there are. But then maybe that's a poor example. Let's think of birds and how many different species of birds there are. But then humans is one single species, yeah. right? And it's so strange to think at a time that there are multiple different species of us, but then also it's strange to think that we're like the only animal where there is a single species that still exists. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's just a strange biological perspective to have. It is. And it's, really, it's really an important perspective to maintain. We spend a lot of time thinking about differences and otherness. And I've realized even in courses here that one of the first questions I have to ask is how many species of human are there? Right. And there's typically silence with a hesitation to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's no, it's one. Yeah. It is one. It is only one, right? And there's never been multiple species of Homo sapien, right? There's never right. been multiple species of human. There have been multiple hominids, right? There's the line of human evolution, right? Is freckled with all sorts of different uh, branching species, but there is one human species, yeah. and that's really essential this day and age to to keep in mind. And it's like the long-standing mystery of what was the interaction between those mm -hmm. many species when they did exist. Yeah, not even Neanderthalus. Neanderthalus. But then there's um, there's so many other ones. What's the one the the population Florensis, right? Oh and, yeah, and the yeah, yeah, Islands. yeah. Right, but they were they were everywhere, and each different species had their own different you know characteristics and traits. And you just wonder the the interaction. And there's also that article that we have Neanderthal DNA, right? Uh -huh. Almost everybody has Neanderthal's DNA, suggesting interbreeding between the species and. So they're not technically gone forever, right? We still have some. Right. Dan Adler in anthropology, he specializes in Neanderthal. Yeah. yeah. So did you ever go out like to do primary field work? I did in field work in uh, the field of archaeological osteology and in Bolivia and Peru, mm. um, and where I was identifying the remains that were being recovered from various archaeological sites at Tiwanaku and then on, in Conco, um, Bolivia. And so that's where I did a lot of my field work when it came to biological field work. Mm. And I ended up doing some forensic work in between undergrad mm. and graduate school. I was called in because osteology was my thing. And um, I was asked to be part of what was called the Forensic Archaeology Recovery Unit. Wow. And it was after 9-11, and it was a, a professor who had the thought that, you know, we have sort of a dearth of people who are, are trained to recover these specific and identify specific types of remains. But our graduate students in anthropology and archaeology know exactly how to right. do this. So mm -hmm. what if they kind of become trained in hazmat and this special training. And so he created this team and they needed a bone person and I became the bone person and I didn't expect anything to, to come of it. Mm -hmm. um, but we were called to the Rhode Island nightclub fire in Warwick when oh, wow. um, the Great White concert took place and the um, pyrotechnics caught fire. And uh, after three days of that, I realized that current wet forensics was not, oh. was not for so, me. Seven million years was great. <laughs> So what did you, you had to look at the, the bones of the so people what, who So yeah, what we did is when we got there, the um, 
the majority of the, the bodies that had remained had been removed, but it had snowed and rained and frozen. Oh my gosh. And so the conditions were really difficult. And they were still trying to verify exactly how many people were there. And they were trying to find the pyrotechnic. And so my job at that point was to collect right the biological remains so it was skin and hair and finger bones and wow. small bones that were still re- remaining and what was really interesting to me was at that point i was so immersed sort of in biological anthropology and the, and the significance of our physical development and our physical selves um, to who we are as a species that i probably in my head had long sort of prioritized that physicality to the cultural attributes that we that we carry with us on an everyday basis. And it was that experience of recovering these remains. And I mean, in most archaeological settings, you find something and you celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. But in this setting, right, you're surrounded by chain link fence where the loved ones of the people who just died in this horrific event mm-hmm. are waiting and watching. Oh. And so what occurred to me is that I could pick up, right, if I had brought any of these these finger bones, right, these hand bones, these small, to anyone on the side, they would have no idea, right, mm-hmm. who this belonged to. Mm-hmm. But the ring on the finger or something that was in the pocket, something that someone used to identify themselves, they would know exactly who they were. They wow. would know exactly who this loved one was instantly and that was a big transition point for me from the sort of biological to the cultural Mm -hmm. and the significance of sort of our expressed daily selves right above and beyond simply our common physiology Mm -hmm. wow that's so intense it was really intense and i i decided that forensics was not for me after that because it was it was really valuable but it was very difficult sure yeah it's chilling yeah and it's like strange just like you just said that the item is more of you than yourself yeah right yeah the item carries all of the stories mm-hmm. and pastimes memories and for the other those around you right? yeah wow yeah so i can understand the movement of the yeah. culture <laughs> anthropology away from forensics <laughs> yeah wow um Let's move on to other other projects you're working yeah. on, right? So um, that, you know, career projection brought you sort of to cultural climate. Yep. But also there's a racial microaggressions project. Yes, so yes. This is totally different. But totally different. Mm-hmm. Totally just different. Just wanted to get your opinion on, yeah. an, an explanation and an opinion on this. A couple years ago, Micah Human, who was in ACES, and I started talking about the research that had been done at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And he had been part of that uh, that research study. And he was telling me about it when he first got to Yukon and said, you know, this is this is just a it's a really spectacular way to gauge what the experience of students are, right? Mm-hmm. And we started talking about what would it look like if we were to try to give greater voice to students of color at Yukon and to really try to get a sense of what the experiences are, where the problems lie, what from the students' perspectives needs to be done. Um, And so we put together a team and built a survey that was mobilized last spring, spring 2019, that went out to the entire campus, but it was primarily focused on trying to collect as much data as possible from 
students of color across all UConn campuses, graduate and undergraduate. And it goes through kind of demographics information, and it goes through experiences of racist behavior. Um, It goes through places where students feel comfortable, uncomfortable, places they even avoid. Um, It goes through their sense of belonging at UConn. It goes through the sense to which they feel that others are welcoming in various contexts at UConn. It gathers information on their perspectives in terms of what needs to be done, what's being done well, where we're falling short. It was about a half hour survey and we actually just remobilized it in November to A, increase our, we, we got our probably about 1,200 respondents um, total. That's pretty good. And we wanted to increase that. We also were paying attention to a few specific things. A, there have been events on campus, mm-hmm. and we wanted to get a sense of how students were faring and coping. Mm-hmm. Looking at the coping mechanisms and looking at the emotional reactions to students following these events is really significant, and so we wanted to make sure we assessed those. And we also found a big difference between the way in which students were responding in their freshman year versus the way students who were upperclassmen were responding. And so we wanted to see if we could balance out some of those perspectives. We are working now on initiating focus groups with students who are interested in kind of following up in person um, to get more sort of firsthand discussions of some of these events and some of these feelings. And then also we, um, we have in mind to also conduct a a longitudinal study so Mm -hmm. we can actually kind of follow students throughout their experience as well as down the road be able to replicate this type of study when it comes to other topics, right? So when it comes to disability, when it comes to sexual orientation, transgender, right? How are these experiences also unfolding here at UConn? And so it's it's a really large project, but we feel like it's really significant. And so we're working now on analyzing that first round of data and getting it out to administrators and to the campus, right? We've had a lot of really great yeah. support from around the campus. Have any particular trends popped up so far? Yeah, can we ask about Yeah. A lot of the data is still being analyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say too much about sort of the, the trends that are popping up, but we do see that there's trends and suggestions from students as to what can be done. Mm-hmm. You know, a a lot of emphasis being placed on celebrating and recognizing the diversity of traditions and and heritage that that exist here at UConn Mm -hmm. and, and really allowing these to stand out more. There's a lot of suggestions. There's a lot of experiences. There's a lot of feelings. There are some unfortunate things that are coming out. Um, there's some positive things that are coming out of it. But yeah, so we're still in the in the phase of analyzing all of the data. It's really similar. Do you know um, the implicit Harvard test? Yeah. You know, that yeah. Click? yeah, I actually did it again last night to see uh, if it was still up and live and active. And it, it's well, your project sounded very similar to that. I don't know. Do you know what that? I do. I yeah. actually had to take it for a philosophy class uh, right. um, a number of years ago. It was a fascinating, like, to kind of examine that about yourself, and it makes you think. Makes you think. It does. I I question the setup of it if it truly is right. reflective or if it's just you know you kind of get primed to associate things in that moment. Like yeah. you're memorizing a few words and a few faces, and you get quick at memorizing. You know, just go here, here, here rather than the actual association of the two objects together. Yeah, I think that was some of the debate surrounding it. 
Um, but if nothing else, it brings up, like, the more that you're aware and you're thinking about it, you know, let's say that it's not the most accurate measure of the implicit bias. It still makes you think about it, and you can try and avoid any implicit biases that you do have. Yes. So it, it serves yeah. a purpose, even if it's not exactly what it's being sold as. Right. If it's not 100%. Right. Uh, has fidelity 100%. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the data there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cool. yeah I'm we're anxious to get it out. Yeah, so 1,200 people. So what is the population, like what is the diversity breakdown at UConn? And then do you think you'll get an accurate subset of? It's still lower than we would like to have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think our cap was something closer to 9,000. Oh, wow. And so we still have plenty of room to continue to gather data. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would like to increase that a lot. But the thing about this type of material and this topic is that even if there's just a few voices, right? Those voices matter, mm -hmm. and those voices are significant. Right. And it's important to recognize those experiences. This is a really diverse team that's working on this from a lot of different disciplines and offices on campus, and even we have undergrad, graduate students, faculty, staff. But the primary goal of this is not necessarily, there's some that will probably publish on it, but it's not academic publication. It is really Purely, to yeah. sort of increase and support the diversity and inclusion on this campus, increasing being sort of the, the, the operative word, um, and also to create a study that can be replicated to at other campuses. Mm -hmm. Right. This is something that we want to we want to share. We got a huge amount of support from the University of Illinois researchers that conducted the study there. And this is a type of information that's essential. Right. Because mm -hmm. um, students suffer. Right. The entire campus suffers. Mm -hmm. The entire educational experience suffers in the absence of diversity and in a lack of appreciation for one another mm -hmm. um, and when the implicit bias takes over. Right. So we feel like. Any numbers are significant. We will continue to try and collect as many as possible. So in all the projects we've discussed, you've mentioned that you include undergraduates in helping yeah. work on them. Is that something you're pioneering or do you feel that you know undergraduates can contribute a valuable perspective and contribute a decent amount of work towards? Or, oh, yeah. Um, it's good to motivate them early and show what these projects are really like. Yeah. So, yeah oh, yeah. I mean, I work a lot with undergrads. I have a lot of students in my classes, and so I have a lot of exposure to the undergrads community mm -hmm. at, at UConn. And so I'm in constant communication with various students about projects that they want to undertake. And so I think it is really important. I think there's a lot of ideas and space for growth with the undergrads. And I think that they offer a huge, especially when it comes to the microaggression study, the undergrads that are on our team are absolutely essential. They've just been... Um, Amazing. Right. And you have to have, especially your, your focus is on a student community, you've got to have mm -hmm. the students there, right? But no, I, I have a lot of projects with undergraduates. I run a lot of independent studies, um, both also with grad students. Mm -hmm. And um, it's helpful to me because it's just such a, a source of energy and ideas. Right. And so I really like bringing them on. When did you get inspired to pursue anthropology in your career? For me, I didn't even know what anthropology was until I mm -hmm. took Anthropology 1000 as a gen ed oh. here at UConn. And so I'm curious yourself. Really young. Yeah? <laughs> My dad gave me a copy of Darwin when I was an mm -hmm. early reader. Wow. And... Um, <laughs> It gave me a, a lump of clay with a garlic press and showed me what survival of the fittest really meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was fascinated. It really started, it was all about, it was human evolution. I mean, I was just fascinated my entire, like, 
high school papers in ninth and tenth grade on Lucy. My daughter is named Lucy, Lucy yeah. right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's continued on. And so people watching, like the human development from a prehistoric and historic perspective, but also human behavior and people watching is just it's just what I've always done. Yeah. It just came very, very naturally to me. <laughs> sure. So there's no other option out there for you. Not really. Not really. It. I mean, I've always been interested in the natural sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, geology was always a huge interest of mine. Ecology, environmental studies, environmental sciences. But when it comes to environmental studies, environmental sciences, the human role is just essential. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the era of climate change. I mean, one thing I say to my students is that the difference between taking a class on climate change and anthropology versus many other classes that you may take on the topic is that, yes, we've got the energy in energy out, right? We can calculate it. We know what is causing this and how it is happening. But from the anthropological perspective, we're also trying to assess the extent to which this problem is lodged in notions of progress and success and ideological values, Mm -hmm. then changing those, that's a wicked problem, right? How you have an entire culture that is historically based on this notion of an entitlement and superiority Mm -hmm. to the natural world, and how to reverse the cause or the effects of that, right? And, And how to instill and motivate change is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, Clearly we're making some progress in that direction, but where are we in that shift? Do you think there's a critical mass that's formed such that we're already going to be able to solve the problems? Like how much more is there left to be done on that side before the real practical aspect of it can move forward? I think it has to be simultaneous. Mm -hmm. We don't have time. I don't think we have time to sort of hold off on the practical solutions. I think everything needs to be simultaneous. The notion that, well, we can't address this until we address that. Well, it's true in terms of we need to address social justice and environmental justice simultaneously, right? And we have the capacity to do that. We have the resources to do that, right? We need to address mitigating climate change and adapting to climate change simultaneously. The notion that trying to develop the technological solutions that will cut carbon emissions or take carbon out of the atmosphere is going to dissuade us from changing our lifestyles. We don't have time, right? Mm-hmm. We, we have to do both. And I like to remain optimistic. And I, I feel like the information and the education is getting out there, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I talk to my students a lot and to really anyone that will listen about (laughs) the idea that I feel like we have an obligation as educators and as parents and as citizens to move away from, and this is gonna be misinterpreted, this rhetoric on recycling. And what I mean by that is we spend a lot of time and students spend a lot of time and professors spend a lot of time and the media and spends a lot of time telling everyone this is what you need to do you need to change that light bulb you need to get rid of that straw you need to stop using that bag and you need to recycle your plastic right and we have to do all of those things and i absolutely live by the mantra act responsibly it's contagious right we have to do that however that's not going to solve and stop this problem. What that does, and although it needs to continue in some strength, there needs to be an ethic of personal responsibility that becomes instinctual. 
we also have to move away from sort of bringing up a generation that includes current college students in this, that are one, at one and the same time bearing the psychological and economic burden of remediating climate change through their individual actions, but also being persuaded to continue to subsidize the mm -hmm. corporations and the companies that are making the greatest contribution to climate change. And that doesn't hold up. And it's gaslighting and it's fleecing. And so I think there needs to be a lot more emphasis put on the upper echelon of institutions and corporations and companies and leaders to recognize where the greatest damage is being done mm -hmm. and to start to go there, right? Because I think that will make the greatest difference in the shortest yeah. amount of time. And I think, again, simultaneous. It has to be bottom up. Yes, work with individual behavior, mm -hmm. but it has to be top down. Yeah. Right there has to be responsibility where it where it lies. And we have to put those social and economic pressures on on these groups. Absolutely, absolutely. And the challenges, yeah, like we discussed at the beginning, is that immediate convenience to just keep doing what you're doing for the short term gain. Exactly. For the large companies, right? If it's going to hurt you economically to do this over the next ten years. There's no incentive. Yeah, right? and it's, we it's and a, we all fall into the convenience yeah. trap, right? Oh, yeah. we, everybody does. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's we had I had a really fascinating uh, FYE class a couple of years ago, and they ran a couple of them ran this little study where they went to as many buildings as they could on campus, and they couldn't get into offices, and I don't think they were in classrooms, just assessing the extent to which the trash barrels were coupled with recycling cans, and they found that a significant portion of them were not coupled. Mm -hmm. And that gets convenience, right? That gets right to the notion of the idea that if there's not the proper bin, right. then it doesn't get used. Mm -hmm. And so, it, I mean, convenience is a big thing in our culture and in the American economy. And so I think that ignoring that or wishing it was different is not necessarily going to get us anywhere, but we have to recognize that that's going to be at play and mm -hmm. that's going to be an obstacle. Another funny thing I saw once was I think this was over a year ago. I saw I think it was an Exxon Mobil commercial, and it was about making this structure, this tower that could convert carbon in the atmosphere to oxygen. It's like, well, that's just a tree, right? Like, <laughs> you just not cut down trees. <laughs> and it was, I was, why is this obsession with technology to make this thing that the Earth has already made and it exists in abundance and we're cutting down? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I, at the end of the semester this past week in the uh, climate change course, I always show TED Talks on, well, we, we always talk about circular economy and TED Talks by William McDonough, um, who is the author with Kenneth Braungart of Cradle to Cradle. Mm -hmm. And their entire, their entire philosophy is built around why don't we build buildings like trees? Why wouldn't we use a cherry tree, sure. which is producing fruit and which feeds creatures, but also then will fall to the ground. And no one's ever going to say, oh, look how messy and wasteful this tree is, right? It's replenishing the soil. It's replenishing mm. the environment. It's feeding the roots. That's only going to regenerate. So why wouldn't we create technology and buildings and infrastructure that cleans as it Mm -hmm. functions mm -hmm. right yeah that's so intuitive now they yeah wow but like why wouldn't we just use a tree as the right. model for right. everything this works don't yeah yeah it's frustrating it's that that laziness is just like an extra <laughs> step that goes along with it so it's that's less what it convenient, is you know and what's so fascinating about the the way he presents it demonstrates you can do this on the same budget 
right? In the same amount of time, we have the technology. We have the abilities, we have the intuition. This is why it's so also wonderful to teach this type of material to this age group, mm -hmm. right? Because you're on the cutting edge, right? Mm -hmm. You have the ideas, you have the abilities, right? Now, how do you use it? How do you take this information and apply it to your field, yeah. right? How do we break the mold? Mm -hmm. But the problem is, and the hang up often comes from this notion of, the notion of a circular economy is, is quite different from the notion of a linear economy, which we exist in now, where the one we exist in now is waste equals profit. Mm -hmm. Money comes from the fact that people are buying new. And we have it's, it's a cradle to grave model versus a cradle to cradle model. And the notion of how do we produce technical goods that are in constant use and constantly used to generate new mm -hmm. as opposed to pulling in natural resources, that infringes on notions of ownership um, and independence. Right. What if you were simply, you know, you are in a constant relationship with whoever you purchased your goods from. And so you're when you were done with it, it went back to them and they reused mm -hmm. it to create something else or something new to give back to you. Right. So it's a constant iterative relationship. That means that, well, then you're saying it's not just mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Right. So that gets at this again, this cultural ideology that is one of the biggest hang ups when it comes to mitigating climate change. Yeah. You know, my entitlement to sort of my my rugged independence and my my individualism mm -hmm. and, you know, the fact that I can drive a, a massive vehicle by myself. <laughs> like, yeah. like, those types well, of that that sense of ownership and yeah. As a biological anthropologist in this movement of technology advancement and this projection that, you know, humans and technology are going to sort of morph into one. Like, how do you feel about the evolution of, I don't know if you've ever been asked that, but I don't know, it's just kind of thinking like this whole cyborg theory of, you know, we're going to become neurally linked to our devices and humans will become part technology. Yeah. Does that, does that lose our origin as a species? Like, do we, do we then become something entirely different or was that just the projection from the start? It's, well, that's the thing. Like, we'll never question, know unless it, we'll, we'll only know in hindsight. Yeah. Man. Right. I mean, it's same with like geological eras. Like, it's you never really name. Like, that's why the whole the controversy with the Anthropocene, right? Well, mm -hmm. the Holocene didn't, didn't get named then, right? It's only yeah. in yeah. hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Are we constantly evolving? Yes. Right. Are we evolving in the same manner that we've we've always evolved throughout millennia? Right. Yes. The mechanisms of evolution haven't changed. Does technology play a role in that? Yes. But is technology evenly distributed throughout the human species? Mm. No. Right. There's huge technology gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I think it will absolutely influence culture and how that will happen and how it will have an effect on those that that are focused on it versus those that aren't? Um, or will everyone just sort of eventually become part and parcel of this? I mean, I think we're certainly moving in direction of more, not less. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I'm a bit of a Luddite, so. <laughs> and younger too, right? I mean, <laughs> kids are just always. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just wanted to ask, I wanted to get your opinion yeah, on that yeah. because I don't know, it's, it's always thrown out there. And it's yeah, blown and out of proportion. it's definitely gonna have a, 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 I mean, I think I would be naive to say that it's not going to have a massive effect and that it's not already. I think it right. is already having a mm -hmm. huge impact. I mean, I've heard it said that we're already cyborgs insofar as yeah, just I mean, with our phones, that we have them constantly on us. And Apple watches, AirPods. Exactly, we're, we're basically there. Yeah. It's not, yeah. You know, it's not implanted yet, but it's always on our person, it's, so. Yeah. 
Implant adjacent. Implant adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram. And email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.